Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that all of it is God-breathed and useful through all things, Lord. We pray now as we look at you, Lord Jesus, we would see clearly who you are and what you've done, Lord, and it would impact us here today. It wouldn't just be a a story we've maybe heard before we've never heard. Uh, It'd be something which uh, we apply directly to our lives, Lord, as we long to become more like you and delight in you more and more. Amen. Uh, One of our mission partners uh, you may have heard me talk about is a man called Das. We support him uh, prayerfully and financially. He helps run a Bible college in India, which sends out missionaries all over the country uh, in one of the most unreached countries of the world. Uh, He uh, he sends a prayer letter. He says it's monthly. It's not monthly. Uh, This was November's, which was the second most recent one I got. This is what he said. He said, a testimony I would like to recall is of a student at our local high school called Fatima. This is a a pastor in another state in India talking about this person. I was homeschooling her because she was in a troubled state for many days and was unable to attend the school for months. She was the most brilliant girl in her class, so I was compelled to teach her at home. One day, while I was speaking to the class, she started behaving strangely. An evil spirit had entered her and began to mock me. Instantly, I asked the elders of the church to come into the room and asked them to pray. The devil started to speak and mentioned that a close relative of them caused the evil spirit to come and control her life so that she might not be able to study anymore. The evil spirit clearly pronounced that only Jesus could cast him out. Here's a picture of Fatima. Just one of mine. You can't really see her there. Up there. Picture of Vitor's Fatima. The story continues. I was surprised at how Fatima, who had never heard about Jesus, had uttered his name. Then the Lord said to me that the family might not have any knowledge about Jesus, but the evil spirit knows Jesus. I was energised by the spirit and prayed with authority and power. And at that very time, she was delivered and attended the class regularly thereafter. Even Fatima glorified Jesus when asked about her healing by her classmates. For a couple of weeks, the family came to attend services, but due to distance, they had to stop coming. However, they continued to call us if they ever needed support. Please pray for her and her family members' salvation. What do you make of that story sitting here in Vista? What do you make of this story here? I I think I struggle with my English mindset when I read that story from Das. When I read this story, I I struggle to grasp it a little bit. I struggle to, to put this story in a category. I trust Das. I know him quite well. I trust the story he sent, his prayer letter, happened. And yet I have very minimal experience about this myself. C.S. Lewis helpfully said this about demons. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. Here in Mark 5, uh, we've got one of the longest stories in the whole of Mark. Um, It's a pretty short, snappy mark, but one of the longest stories, and it's all about an exorcism. And we're going to see three clear points, three main points. They may not be clear, but they'll be main. Uh, We're going to look at how evil is real and it's complicated, how evil has a pattern, and how we have a solution to evil. Okay, so um, the Bible is clear. There are demons. And as I said, I wonder what you make of that. I wonder how you relate to that today. I think in our 
uh, are sort of Western, if you have come and you've lived most of your life in the West, are sort of naturalist world. We struggle to grasp this. I know I can. Um, I, th- I think often my whole awareness of the spiritual realm is limited. My mum, on the other hand, is, is a wonderfully godly prayer for women. She'd regularly remind me uh, to put on the full armour of God, as Ephesians 6 talks about to protect myself against the devil's schemes. On the positive side, she is one of uh, the most spiritually prayerful women I know who will regularly share scripture with me that the Lord has put on her mind. And I think as I reflect on this story, I'm dangerous like the first of Lewis's categories. I think there's probably another reason why when it comes to a story like this with demon possession, we don't have much real life experience. What's Satan's main aim in this world? Well, it's that people would be deceived so that they would not follow Jesus. They would not believe in God. They would not believe in a spiritual world. As we saw with Lewis, he's keen on both of the opposites, either obsession or utter ignorance. So in a country, in a society right now, where the spiritual blindness leads people to doubting the reality or the power of demonic forces in general, in the spiritual realm in general, I think it would make sense that the enemy's primary strategy is not demon possession. He doesn't make us aware of it. If he can slither around unnoticed, why make himself more visible? It makes sense to me. I grew up in India and there was far more stories of this in a, in a far more spiritual country, far more aware of what's going on. It makes me want to heed Lewis's warning. I wonder where you stand when you hear this story. Maybe you hear it and you think it just sounds a little bit illogical and a little bit irrational, a bit unscientific. Let me just flip that question. The majority of people in the world, the stats tell us, think there is a possibility of a God. The majority of people here statistically will either believe in him, I know a good number of you do, or believe in the possibility of him. There's a very small percentage who don't believe in God, who are true and ardent atheists. And if that's you, it's perfectly logical that you think this story is absolutely nuts. Perfectly logical. But if you do believe in God or believe he could exist well then why not demons why not believe in evil forces as well as good forces so I think it is logical if you have a belief in a God to believe this really happened or maybe you hear this story you think it just sounds a little bit primitive a bit uneducated maybe this man here is just severely mentally ill or suffering with something people didn't understand then but we do now our modern medicine, in our enlightened state. We understand this. But the Bible is not a primitive book. It understands evil. It understands suffering really complexly. It's not simplistic. It understands things that are different when it comes to evil and sickness and suffering. In Matthew 4, we, we hear about how Jesus went out healing. It says news about him spread all over Syria. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralysed, and he healed them. You see, even just then we see a little bit that the Bible, the gospel writers, recognise there were different things going on. I think we know this ourselves, that evil and suffering is complex. It's really hard to know what to pray sometimes. There are intermingling factors. If you think of maybe some of the major issues we face as a society... Or maybe some of the historical ones. Think about the Holocaust, world wars, the, the plague of gun massacres in America, the abortion epidemic worldwide. Let's rightly call them evil. 
But their causes and their outworkings are complex, aren't they? We, we can't just say it's due to a series of bad choices that some of them have happened or due to a single bad, few bad people. Evil is complex. Suffering is complex. This man was suffering. For people who struggle with their mental health, it's too simplistic to nearly every time reduce it to one factor. Then in terms of how it manifests, it's, it's too complex to pin down it to just physical symptoms or emotional ones or spiritual ones. It's complex. And the Bible acknowledges that. It's also personal. Paul in the book of Ephesians tell us, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. According to the Bible, Demonic factors stir up other factors in your life. In 1 Timothy, we're told about the proud, how they fall into the trap of the devil. In Ephesians, we're told that those who are bitter and angry fall under his influence. Our our patterns of sin, our addictions that we struggle with, our, our psychological problems are complex. And we can't say that some are purely sort of physiological, that some are moral and some are emotional, some are evil. They're complex. And it's important we grasp this complexity as we come to a story like this. Because if we have too simplistic a view of evil, we won't be able to deal with it. We won't be able to know who can deal with it. We won't be able to think about it properly. As I said, we in the West generally live in a pretty materialistic world where we're more likely to say to someone, well, just take a pill and find the right medication and you'll be better. Or or in a therapeutic society, we say counselling and talk therapy is the problem is the solution to the problem or in more superstitious cultures it's the opposite end of the lewis spectrum they see the devil behind everything potentially but things are complicated if this man this man in the gelasines came into our church or we saw him we'd probably only refer him to the doctor now maybe to a psychiatrist and that is something we probably would do and should do but let's be aware that that's not always all that is going on Let's not be simplistic in our view of evil and suffering. There's a spiritual world. We can't ignore it. It's real and it's complicated. It's the first thing we see. Second thing we see is the pattern of evil in a life. And having said that, having having talked about the spiritual world, I want to demystify this man a bit. He's an extreme, but he's more like us than we'd like to admit, I think. Uh, the translations here in the, the New International Version, the version we normally use, I think, uh, having read others, uh, I take no credit for making this point, they're not massively helpful when it talks about him being demon-possessed. Uh, I think we read about that and we think, well, I've never met somebody like that. Uh, well, and this story doesn't apply to me then. Uh, we think of films like The Exorcist and things like that. But uh, the Greek lexicon, I think, gives a better diff- definition, we're told. It, it talks about him being demonised. It's affected by a demon. And as we saw, as we've seen, and I can take you to the passage later if you want to talk about it, according to Paul in his letters, when in any way we are proud or selfish or angry or bitter, in some degrees we are possessed by evil. The difference here is not of quality but of quantity because I think we can notice the same patterns in our lives when we see this man. This man is more like us than not. See, all evil, all sin, can be tied directly or indirectly to the devil. For every act of sin is only possible because he himself introduced wickedness into creation by rebelling against our creator. 
And demon possession, as is outlined here, and this is extreme, it's a particularly severe and direct work of Satan. And as we look at this pain in this suffering and illness, we're taken back to Genesis. See, the demons are waging war against man. Helen prayed about it. We are people who are made in the image of God, made to reflect him. That's why we're more, more like him. We're more like this man than we want to admit, possibly. We're also more like God than anything else in creation, Genesis tells us. We alone are made in the image of God. And by attacking and possessing this man, Satan is attempting to deface the Lord's image. To strike a blow against God himself. Now this man, as I said, it's extreme. He's said to be very sick. Many years, it sounds like. He could not be bound when he once was. He's living in tombs. He's crying out. He's cutting himself. It's a scary picture. But not all demonization is as starkly gross as this. Paul in 2 Corinthians tells us this. He says, and no wonder even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. See what he's saying? It's scary. Demonized men and women can appear utterly conventional. Even be spiritual leaders in the Christian community. Now we must not think that human beings being demonized to such an extent or descending to the degradation of this man is all that happens. Unfortunately, we do not all in our sin come to this, this Finally, this slavery we see in him. But if you've been at town church all of this year, we've been in the book of Romans and we've seen quite clearly that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So as we look at this man, we can recognise a pattern whilst it is extreme. He's become a slave and he's lost his identity. First, notice slavery with me. It's the one which has led to his extreme strength. No one was strong enough to subdue him. I wonder if you've ever heard of the Faustian bargain, the story of Faust, Dr. Faustus. Marlowe wrote the story in the 16th century. It's a story in which someone makes a deal with the devil to have whatever they want in exchange for their soul. You get something great, but ultimately lose it all. There's many stories like this in literature, even in The Simpsons. There's a famous episode around it. Popular culture, fairy tales. And last week, I think there's one I observed. I went to watch Oppenheimer. Um, I'm on the Oppenheimer side of the Barbie Oppenheimer debate. Um, I caught a showing of it. It tells the story of Robert Oppenheimer. It's well worth a watch. He's the man credited with creating the atomic bomb. Uh, and in the film, as it goes through in the timeline, we see a man who in a sense has made a deal with the devil and he's facing the consequences. He wanted power. He wanted influence. He wanted credibility in his community and he got it all. There's a whole film, one of the most successful ones of all time made about him now. Got it all, but power and fame came in exchange for utter guilt. He couldn't grasp what he'd done when he'd done it. He, he got power. We see this man here. He's got power, but he also got intense guilt, Oppenheimer, for the rest of his life. He was wrapped with what he'd done. Sin and evil is like this. It enslaves us. It, it promises more. It, if anything in your life is more important to you, your self-image, uh, more important to your happiness than God's, anything than it is your master, we're told. And you've made a pact with it. So again, put yourself in this story in some ways, hopefully not to this extreme. What is your heart centred on? What, what gets you going in the morning? What do you daydream about? What do you spend your time and money on? If anything is more important to you 
than God, you will become enslaved by it. Uh, Becky Manley Pippet has read a brilliant book, Out of a Salt Shaker. She's powerfully said this, if you seek power, you'll be controlled by power. If you seek acceptance, you'll be controlled by the people you want to please. No one controls themselves. We're controlled by what the Lord of our life is. We don't quite know what it was that this man had originally been getting himself into. We don't know that. But there's something there. It seems to be around power. What it is for you? Let me give you an example just to help ground it. It could be your career. I know this is one I grapple with. It's possible even as a Christian to make your career your, your main thing, your idol. And doing this, if you make it a real priority, it will give you power in a sense. It'll make you driven. You'll get out of bed to have success and status in your career and this will help you in it. There's nothing wrong with being excellent within our jobs as well. Don't hear me wrong there. You, you get power and you'll probably do better than others because uh, whose career is not the main thing. So you'll have success, you'll have promotions, you'll probably have more money. But, but here is the, the sort of Faustian bargain part of it. If you make it the main thing above anything else, well, in order to progress, at times you might exploit people. You might make enemies. Uh, maybe you'll cut corners in order to progress. Maybe physically you'll be driven into the ground. You'll be knackered by your pursuits of progression. Maybe as you prioritise your career, it'll be to the detriment of the relationships of those you love. What's tragic here as well is we see in verse 3, as he talks about this man, he lived in the tombs. There's one word, it's tragic. No one could bind him anymore this slavery is progressive more and more if you make something else more important to you than god you'll find yourself enslaved pursuing success but losing out on much more because you see the devil doesn't make these bargains clear to us he hides the negatives he hides the consequences he doesn't say to you friend have this success have this drivenness in your career but the way your children may resent you when you're older for never spending time with them doesn't put the consequences on the front cover of the brochure he presents to you that's an example career but it could be many other things for you ever think we all to some degree are like this man none of us completely center our lives on the lord we center our lives on other things so what are we going to do what's the solution well i wonder what the solution is you'll be surprised to hear it's jesus he is the one who can deal with evil And so the call is to know him and cling to him. He's the higher power. We saw that last week brilliantly from side, the power of nature and here the power over evil. It's a funny scene in the way when we get into it, what goes on. Um, It turns out, um, having read some commentaries on this, there's loads of literature about exorcisms in the time of Jesus. Not necessarily in the Bible, but from other literature around. They all follow a very similar pattern. Uh, The one doing the exercising calls on a higher power to get rid of the demon. And amusingly, the demon, Legion, tries this first. We see in verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran over and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And this is it. In God's name, don't torture me. By saying that, the demon was calling on a higher power. It doesn't work. Amazingly, Jesus is the only person in any of the literature who does not do this. He does not call on a higher power. You'll get what I'm getting at when it comes to exercising with demons because he is the higher power. 
Helen talked about miracles earlier. All of Jesus' miracles, we're looking at miracles over the summer, all of them are previews of what is ultimately to come. The paralyzed man shows our sins will be totally and completely forgiven. The, the calming of the storm we saw last week shows we'll live at peace with creation in a recreated earth. This exorcism shows us that we will live in a world with no evil, with no suffering and with no pain. The Messiah, the promised one, was prophesied right back in Genesis 3 to be the one who will come and break the heel of the snake of the devil to defeat evil. And Jesus is demonstrating here that he is the promised Messiah. Straightforward. I'm sure you saw exactly where I was going there of what was going to be the solution. But you're really asking, what on earth is going on with the pigs? <laughs> I'm sure you are when you heard the story. I- I've listened, I've read a bit this week. It turns out a lot of pastors say it's the top three question they get asked. What about suffering? Um, what about the Trinity? What about the pigs? Um, it's right up there. Um, here's what people have to say. Firstly, it's not made up. Um, and I say that um, because in no other stories of literature from the time, uh, and other people did this work for me, not me, or other stories of exorcism, do we have things with pigs? It's fair to say it's weird. There'd be no reason for Mark to put it into his account unless it happened. It's bizarre. There's no parallel to it. So we can say it's not made up. We can say we don't really know what's going on. We've talked about the complexity of things. We don't really know how spirits work. We can't presume too much. But what we can clearly see is that demons are not to be messed with. We see them possess the pigs and barrel down the hill. We see that, but we do see some other things. Uh, Matthew's account of the same story, it seems to be the same story, tells us the demons said it was not their time to be judged. They will be judged. As miracles point towards what's going on in the future, they'll ultimately, alongside all evil, be defeated on the final day. But not yet. So when Jesus cast them out to the pigs, he's seemingly saying there'd be no more human host for them. Another factor at play here is that for the first time, Jesus in this gospel is appearing on Gentile, not Jewish land, Roman land. And that is why they were pigs. You wouldn't see them in Jewish territory. The Jews, interestingly, used to call the Romans pigs, the ultimate insult for them. They thought all their problems were because of the Romans, because of the unclean pigs. They thought the promised Messiah was going to come and conquer the unclean Roman pigs, was going to bring them political and military victory. They, they thought, Haha, Jesus is going over there to Gentile land. He's going to go and drive all the evil pigs into the sea. What does Jesus do? He heals one of those evil pigs. In doing that, he's telling his Jewish audience, he's ter- telling those watching on his disciples, we can't just see evil as a problem which is, is out there. It's blamable on something else. It's just the Romans in this case. No, no, evil is not just out there, it's in here. And he's telling us the same. He's saying evil is not just something out there, it's in here. And so he heals one of them. He casts out the evil. And how does he do that? Well, he casts them into something which was less valuable. And he also becomes like the man. You see, these pigs were expensive. The people were afraid of what had happened and they pleaded for Jesus to leave. And there's a slight question we're asked here on what is a human life worth? Because their society wasn't like ours with a more sentimental view of animals. The animals weren't the problem here for them. The villagers weren't pleading with Jesus to leave because they were animals. They were afraid of Jesus, but also these were cash for them. 
incredible wealth had just gone down and been drowned. So the question we're asked, what is a human life worth? Jesus is saying, and he's saying this to you if you feel worthless, it's worth infinitely more than 2,000 pigs. It would have been a lot of cash. We alone were made in his image out of all of creation. The animals were not made in his image. We alone are made in his image and we're worth redeeming and saving. It's the first thing we see, but ultimately what we see here is the power and the grip of evil. The slavery of it is broken by a greater love. And so the value at play is really important here. The feeling valuable and seeing the value of what Jesus did for you is key here. Because ultimately we see this most clearly when we think about the man. We see how his life changed and we think about Jesus and how Mark will show us his life will change. This is how Jesus deals with evil. He becomes like it. He takes it on. This is how much he values you. This is how much he loves you. Read down with me verse 15. So those attending the pigs have ran off. They'd reported this in the town. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man. Think of this man. This man had been in the tombs. This man had been cut and beaten and bruised. He'd been harassing the town for who knows how long. No one could bind him. Night and day he would cry out and cut himself to stones. They look at this man and how do they see him? They see him dressed in his right man and they were afraid. This is the exchange. This man is clothed. Jesus dies on the cross for us, naked. This man was in his right mind. Jesus died on the cross for us, chained and crying out. This man was no longer living in the tombs. Jesus was driven to the tomb. This is how Jesus ultimately defeats evil. Remember the quote before, whatever we love, that is what we'll be like. Anything we love more than Jesus will enslave us. So how do we stop that happening? By meditating on this. Meditating on Jesus' loving substitution for us on the cross. By fixing our eyes on him, his painful suffering, his taking on of all the evil in the world. It's there we see a great love for us. It's there we see the greatest love for us. A love powerful enough to break any slavery. It's when we see the cost of him doing that for us. We have a powerful enough love which replaces any of our other loves, any of our other masters. As we're gripped by this greatest love, that Faustian pact is defeated. The power of evil is broken. One author said this, fill your affections with the cross of Christ. And there'll be no room for sin. Because Jesus can deliver you from anything if you come to him. He can save you from your past sins, your present sins. But as we see here, amazingly, he can also restore you. Back to a proper love for your spouse. Back to a love for your parents, your children. Back to a love for himself. Back to a a right realignment of things. saw this on Twitter about five minutes before finishing this sermon. I thought you might need a brain break as we come into lands. Change is possible. He restores us. You're getting a joke now. He restores us. The thing that Jesus, that stops Jesus doing this is when we act like the Gennacerines. They were afraid they sent him away. 
It is right to fear the Lord, but he calls us to come to him. So let's not send him away. Come to him. Delight in him. Ask for his help if you have specific areas where you need to see change and deliverance from the pattern of evil in your life. And it's then we can have real confidence and hope that like this man, we can become powerful tools for redemption in this world. See, Jesus sends him back to his people to preach the good news. The first evangelist to the Gentiles. It's then that we can go and bring light into a dark world as we recognise our own need for forgiveness. Our own need for the grip of evil to be broken. And the wonderful, powerful act of Jesus. We recognise that we can go. So we experience his grace ourselves. We can come alongside people like this man. Broken and hurting. We can bring life as we point them to the giver of life. We can keep doing that. We can keep pointing people where life and where joy is ultimately fine. Keep pointing people away from the grip of sin. Away from the grip of things which enslave people in this world. A love of money, an addictiveness to distraction. Love of our career, pornography, alcoholism, drug addiction. A love of self, an obsession with our appearances and what people think about us. Whatever it might be that grips our lives, that grips your life. We can point people, we can point ourselves again and again to the love of Jesus, the greater love of Jesus and the promise of the world to come, a world without sin and a world without evil. For that is the promise of the Messiah of the life to come in his kingdom because ultimately Christ has defeated evil. Let me pray while the band get up and we're going to sing this great love. Father God, we thank you and praise you for sending your son Jesus, the Messiah, to crush the devil's grip, to crush him and defeat him forevermore. We thank you for this miracle, which is a foretaste of that defeat of evil to come. We thank you that on the cross you defeated evil once and for all. You took our sin. You defeated Satan. You took away his greatest weapon, that of death. And we can sing as people who have been restored because of the gracious work of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your work on the cross. We pray that it would, uh, now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, now as we sing, Lord, that that love would rise up within us and continue to transform us more and more into your likeness, continue to help us break any grips on our lives. Lord, that a greater love would replace any lesser loves in our lives, Lord. Help us. We need your help to do that, we pray. Amen. Let's sing.